Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Law of Power straight out of Los Angeles. And their absolutely insane opening track, We Are The Hounds, featuring Maxi Mike, Section Hate. Uh, for those who are unaware, Law of the Power is a brand new band. They got their stuff up on Bandcamp. We've got the link in the show notes. You can also check them out on Spotify, especially in the aftermath of some of the craziest shows I've ever seen on YouTube in my life, featuring Dead City Punks, Alpha Omega, Section Hate. I'm not surprised more bands from the area are coming out, but I do think that Law of Power have something really special, very mean, very aggressive, very much in the vein of like true old school hardcore with a twist that keeps the young kids happy with a lot of really awesome bouncy rhythm moshy shit to just the the balance between the two is incredible. Awesome to hear new bands doing things and big shout outs to everybody in LA for doing what you're doing and getting everybody riled up to have some fucking wild times this summer. So check them out on the show notes, TIHCpodcast.com. Hopefully there's more to come from these guys in the coming months. Once again, let's talk about some shows we have coming up. Sunday, June 27th, PA Hardcore fucking returns with Madball. That's right, Madball. Club Reverb. Not the big room, but outside. Uh, When I tell you we don't even have 50 tickets left by the time you're hearing this, I fucking mean it. Get your ticket. Don't wait for doors. This show is stacked. Mayball, Dead Before Dishonor, Cool Hands, Hangman, Multiple Homefront, Chaos, aka MH Chaos, their first fucking East Coast show. And Hesitate, representing the 610, starting to show off right. Make sure to get your tickets now. We have links at phcshows.com for every one of these shows. Next up, Saturday, July 3rd, in Philadelphia, at Underground Arts, Year in Life Record Release 4, Internal Incarceration. We had to push it back a year because of COVID, supposed to be at the church, but we're hoping this lineup just keeps you guys happy. Here is Year of the Knife, Mind Force, Queensway. Our friends, Age of Apocalypse, coming out from the Hudson Valley. Lumpy and Sanction have a band that we played last week called All Due Respect. It's their first fucking show. And our boys in Raw Life are opening. Check it out. Another great one. And those tickets are also going pretty quick. So, don't sleep. And finally, Boyo Bobo, Bob Wilson, the king of Florida. Couldn't be the king of Philly. There's just way too much going on up here. He moved down to Florida. He took over an entire swampland and built a goddamn festival that sets the precedent for what becomes cool. I'm convinced, actually, that Bob has a goddamn time machine. Goes in the future and figures out that bands like NEG are popular. Goes back and then books them before they even start playing shows. Therefore, he capitalizes on it. In all seriousness, Bob's a fucking man. And what he did with the Philly Unity Barbecue is absolutely incredible. This time it's going to be out in Sellerville, Pennsylvania. The coolest thing about this show is that if you're there before 2 p.m., you only pay $2. And you get to see Pennsylvania's, not the hardest, not the prettiest, but some of the best moshers currently. That's right. I'll say that about Keith Gallagher. That's right, Kevin Hare. Keith Gallagher's a better mosher than you. Payback will be playing first. $2. After payback gets done their last note, it's $10 after that. Be smart, show up, support all the fucking bands. The last one was absolutely spectacular because of COVID. Bob couldn't do one. And 
he did his best with the punk rock flea mark feeling, and it was really cool. But this is Bob's first shot back out. We have a lot of shows. You can check them all out at phillyhcshows.com. Also, be sure to check on all the social media at Philly HC Shows on Instagram and Twitter because we are have a lot of shows that will be announced in the next coming weeks, and this is going to be a crazy time. And big shout out to Bob. I mean, he's on a recon mission, climbing under rocks, going through trees, finding venues because it's going to be a packed house with all the different shows with different you know genres, and so we're not getting slowed down by that. And so. Be ready for fucking shows coming up. Also, Patreon. I said it last episode. I am currently banking a bunch of stuff. When when the Audacity thing happened and it made the entire podcast sound like shit and I couldn't even use it on the computer because it was drawing it out my computer, I switched over to Reaper. And the, the files don't cross over to open them up. It's a big pain in the ass. So I'm actually re-recording a lot of stuff. And I'm going to go from no activity to constant activity and getting ready to upload even more this weekend. So check it out, patreon.com slash hardcore. Well, nine months ago, I talked to Sonny Singh as episode two. For those who are tuning in and hoping to get the entire background and motivation and inspiration, sorry cuz, that was episode two. You got to go back and check that out. Quality's not as nice as this one, but hey man, nine months later, the kid's starting to get it together. We got a better... Uh, digital audio workspace. I finally learned how to use a microphone. And in thinking about all the conversations that happened online, I thought it's pertinent to talk to somebody like Sonny who built a channel that's its own media source for so many different people across the world. Truly a worldview is projected on his channel through hate56.com in all the social media. And if we're going to talk about platforms and how to use them and the best ways that we can amplify other voices through our own platform. There really is nobody that I know more closely as a friend and respect his opinion on how to use a channel than Sonny Singh. So a lot of our conversation is just talking about the ethos and the ideas behind having a channel and using your platform, but not trying to take the limelight and steal the thunder, so to speak. And then we break into talking about the move movement, which if anybody who's not from Philadelphia, we talk a lot about it on the show, you can Google it, but really what it comes down to is in the last few months, things have really picked up once again for the move movement, especially with the brilliant voice of Mike Africa Jr. going out, speaking publicly, he has his own podcast, and Sonny is like an aide in the camp of mood and watching day to day as things are just absolutely incredibly crazy happening and it's a very tragic there's a lot of background that we didn't even get into because he legally he can't discuss it but this is a pretty fun episode and a great way to bring back a friend who was there at the very beginning and for those listening who don't know Sonny and I were in a computer store when he was buying a tv and that was the impetus to say fuck it I keep talking about doing this podcast and so I bought the gear with Sonny in hand, he helped me pick it out. Um, he was episode two. So, let's fucking rock. We are talking to Sonny Singh of Hey Five Six, 
those of you who started out with us and some of you who dropped back to the very beginning to start checking out our earlier episodes may have heard episode two featuring Sonny Singh. Throughout the years when Hate Five Six began, we covered all of that in episode two. So we're not going to go to origin stories or whatever. Needless to say, we have created a symbiotic relationship, kind of a, a friendship that is really deep between Sonny and I personally, and the way that Philly Hardcore shows and This Is Hardcore Fest works alongside in unison at times in a very symbiotic relationship with Hey Five Six. And I thought it'd be cool to check up on someone who was so busy within the hardcore scene because we really were dealing with so much background and we only touched briefly on some of the projects that he had coming up. And since that episode was recorded in late August, so much has changed. And I feel that in trying to uh, create a narrative where we have a real discussion about platforms and how to use them, there really isn't anyone better than Sonny Singh. So thank you for coming back on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you giving me a couple couple hours notice this morning to, to come back on. Listen, sometimes the best things I've ever done were Hail Marys. Oh, I know that. I, I'm well aware of your, your ability to pull things off. Uh, it's um, remarkable. And trying, to cre- and trying to create conversations or I feel that the younger folks and maybe possibly older folks within the hardcore sphere tend to use the term platform. And like, you know, this is your platform and this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And in the awakening of the COVID pandemic year and the insane racial tension and the public outcry, I saw so many different things from so many people people within the hardcore sphere. And this this went all the way up until the shows at Thompson Square Park and the this, you know, the discourse between that versus the Los Angeles hardcore show. And then later on now where everyone is just excited for shows. Someone who I know has been in the trenches, not just socio-politically, but getting fucking beat up in these comments for any kind of context that isn't related to shows that I feel like you are best suited to really have a discussion about this. Yeah, especially in the last couple of years, I've been constantly being targeted for various things. And I'm at a point now where it used to bother me. And you know this, you know how much I used to take that stuff personally and how it would impact me. But lately I'm like, it is what it is. You're gonna talk shit. <laughs> Keep talking shit. Like my what I what I what I tell myself is that none of it, all of it, is designed to take me off my course or to stop me, and none of it has worked. So why should I sit here worrying about paying any mind to it? So I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit uh, avoidant, but it's also been healthy for me to just to not have to like obsess and fixate over trying to appease everyone all the time. Cause early on, early on when I was doing hate by six, I was like, all right, I just want to, I just want to make everyone happy. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I just want to come in and come out and do my thing and do it by the books. And now I'm at a point where it's like, all right, here's what I'm about. Here's what I do. If you don't fuck with it, then cool. I'll just move on. I don't, I'm okay with people not liking me now. Um, but you're right. I think that we're deaf. We're certainly in a climate right now where, 
everything, no matter what your position or what you do, you're going to, you're going to upset someone. Um, especially with the way that hardcore and everything in general has been globalized. Like anyone can call themselves a hardcore person because they've watched a video of one hardcore band and they kind of like, they then follow hate five, six. They might not know anything about anything else about hardcore or general sense of political awareness in the scene. And one post might set them off because they're just not used to the types of things that are being discussed in this, in this world. So um, it, can we take it? Can we take some? I wanted to, to talk about that specific point because that was something I was going to actually bring up later. The hardest thing for me to not grasp and not conceptualize is is to really walk the true line of giving people who have the access and exposure. Remember. Ernie Talbert, thank you for giving me those two words. I say, I recite it often. But the internet gave access and exposure to our subculture to untold millions of people throughout the world. And with this great amount of information comes responsibility. And I find that in some way, there is a buffet-style pick-and-choose that comes from the people who relate to our culture solely through social medias or just through the internet, who have no firsthand true dyed in the paint hardcore punk experience. And much like you, I found myself unable to steer the course. I mean, I eventually by 2009 and 10, when you and I started linking up, when we literally were making movies, making fun of the complaints made about me, it was easier to navigate, but I find that from as early as the internet began and me seeing uh, myopic viewpoints created in the inter- inter- internet space, there is context that's lost. And I do believe to some degree that while, yeah, there's there's dues that are going unpaid, so to speak, if we use that street terminology like paying dues. There are some unpaid dues that some folks are taking advantage of by being able to step in on any conversation regarding our culture or, and to speak directly to people who are creators or participants or just people in the mix and just talk to them so crazy disparaging. And I mean, this is the oldest trope in the world. You'd never say this to my face, yada, yada, yada. But I think it's hard for people like yourself, when you're doing this out of love and out of, out of a true want to benefit everybody to have these just random ghost detractors come in and and how much space and time do we give them knowing that they've got no skin in the game? Like, and and no, actually often, I don't know if you've seen this, they can talk about it. Like, (laughs) I don't even really care about this, but then you're like, then why are you here? How do you feel about that in terms of like, do you think that's a good way to lay that out or, you know, kind of, where are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that for me personally, that starts veering a little towards gatekeeping because there's a balance here because you don't want to exactly you don't want you don't exactly. want to gatekeep the community because all of us at some point were just some dork who just stumbled upon hardcore and punk, and some people they dip out after a little bit of time, so people become lifelong, you know, members of it, 
So there's a risk. How do you, so then how do you navigate as you're trying to build not only a rapport with the direct audience that is hate five, six, but infuse positivity in the community? How do you specifically handle knowing that you have to divide your attention between things that are important with people who have no skin in the game? And are you taking this from a, a place of information or like, how do you handle it when you know you're talking to someone who basically really isn't invested in all this? Like, where do you where do you stand on where do you handle when you're getting some kind of discourse online with these kind of people? Yeah, I would say that I you yeah, you specifically for me personally, not yeah, like as a general. Yeah, I mean, when someone reaches out to me, if it's someone that I've engaged with before, or if it's someone who I've seen engage in a lot of my posts in what I feel like is a productive way or in a, or in a genuine way, then I'm more more likely to to respond, but. I think that, especially in the last year or so, the threshold to, to actually get me to engage with someone is significantly higher now. Because I I used to respond to everyone. I used to I used to clap back at people, but I'm at a point now where I'm like, I don't have the energy for a lot of it. So, by and large, um, I kind of just go with the flow, and it's it really uh, honestly it really depends if I, if I'm if I'm in the mood. If I'm in the mood to respond to someone, I'm more likely to do it. But, um, and I don't know. I think that's just in part of how difficult it is to to run the channel as it grows. Because as it grows, I'm having to deal with more more voices trying to like reach through to me. And not not to say like I'm untouchable. You can't talk to me. But there's there's more noise. So the signal to noise ratio has changed completely. There's a lot more noise to deal with in order to find to get through the messages or comments that I think that are, are worth replying to. Like, for example, someone today was replying to a post saying like, Hey, this, this band's cool. It was some video that I posted from like 2005 and someone's like, Hey, I don't know how to find, find this music. Where do I go? And I, I responded. I said, Hey, like hit up this person. He runs the record label that they were on. He can help you. So I'm as much as I'm trying to not dive too deeply into comments and what people are saying like i'll keep an eye on if someone is genuinely interested in trying to find more out for find out more about a band or find out more about like upcoming shows i'll like point them in the direction but i think my bullshit detector has gotten pretty good in the sense of determining if someone is just trying to get a reaction out of me or if they're just trying to just bullshit for the sake of bullshitting like i think i've gotten pretty good at picking up on that well i definitely feel in the covid year specifically but even beforehand there was a subset of people who would directly interact out of boredom and and you know without without disparaging them and calling them trolls i feel that the way that our society is just separating itself from just true human interaction that there is endorphin rushes that come from whether it's positive or negative social experiences on the internet and getting rises out of people. And so for me, when, when we're talking about the difference between like gatekeeping people and keeping good natured folks from, you know, Hey, well, you don't have the prerequisites to be a part of our culture. The, the, the opposite side of the coin is like, Hey, I have X amount of time in my life. I've got X amount of hours to do the things that I need to do me personally. Then, you know, all the other things I can't waste time on folks who have 
nothing that they're really adding to it. And they're what they're trying to do to some degree is slow what I got to do down for their own fucked up entertainment is the way I've looked at it. And so it's like, I won't gatekeep. And I, and I feel that there's even a, a moment where I could imagine the punk side of humans is to poke fun and to make some interactions. I mean, you can watch videos from 78, 79 at this tours and live concerts. The punks had no problem spitting at people and shit. And this went on well into the, you know, mid to late 80s. And, you know, obviously people got cracked in the face. Well, we're not going to crack everybody's face for saying shit. But there is a punk moment of, like, pushing back. But I, I to kind of wrap up this part, I think it's, it, it's exactly what you said. It takes time to kind of filter, and it's by feel, what this person really is trying to get. What are you trying to do with this comment? Or what are you trying to do with this this, this direct message? And then it's again, like it's a, the equation. How much time do you want to put towards nonsense when you have so many positive things moving forward, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's interesting though. I also, I also made the conscious decision recently to not even read positive things. Like someone sent me, Bingo. there was like a link that someone sent me. There was like a, there was like a post about like, apparently like saying nice things about the work that I do. And I was like, you know what? A year or two ago, I would dive right into this and fill my own ego. But I, I was like, you know, I'm not even going to read that. Cause I don't want to, I just felt like if I'm going to take this position where I'm like trying to be agnostic towards comments, then I need to really be, I need to be, be about it and not, um, be influenced or biased towards things that are only positive. So I'm at a point now where I'm like, all right, I'm going to just keep focusing on my work and what I'm doing and the vision that I have for running hate by six and what I want to do with, with the, with the, the reach that I have. And like, that means being heads down and focusing on the work and not being like, not being taken off course by negative feedback, but also not, not obsessing, and inflating my ego over like praise. Cause that's also, <laughs> that's also, that can also be toxic to you. That also give, that also creates um, uh, my, like my, myopic view of, of who, you, who you are and what you're trying to do. And so I, I don't know. I think that um, I've been getting better at just thinking about uh, what it means to engage with people and what it means to allow people's thoughts to like seep into my own headspace and like my own vision of what I'm trying to focus on. Now, because you use the word engage, I like to turn a little bit towards something that you have always talked about directly to me. And also on your social medias regarding engagement. When I find it interesting when you're able to take a couple bad apples and turn it into a positive as, as far as how it, it it helps your algorithm grow and build by this person not really realizing they're just the being like the inertia towards the you know like the growth of your channel you know yeah they're they're oil to the machine they they fuel the algorithm um i've had some conversations with social media managers and they said that in their opinion it actually doesn't work and that in their experience fueling the trolls only invites more trolls and it doesn't actually put the feed into more people's or doesn't put the content in more people's feeds, I should say. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. Um, I find I haven't done any super intense 
analytics, but I find that on a surface level, when I have high, like a higher engage, when, when, when controls are more active, it does draw more attention to the post in terms of if just raw view count. And for me, ultimately, that is the that's the objective function that I'm trying to optimize. I'm trying to optimize views. I'm trying to optimize views on a post because it's uh, a band playing their first show and I want them to reach a large audience. Or it's a political speech that I filmed the night before in Center City and I want more eyes and ears on it. So um, I've learned to not take that stuff personally and I've sort of divorced myself from like taking everything uh, to heart. and the way I look at it is like, Hey, if you're engaging, cool. Like you're engaging, keep, keep doing that. Cause, um, in many ways it is just, uh, it's fodder. It's fodder for the algorithm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to allow people to talk shit, but there is a limit that there, there, there are certain limits where I'm just like, you know what, this, <laughs> uh, it's not like a set in stone three strike policy, but if, if there's someone who's continual, continuously like, abusing their ability to troll like yeah i'm gonna block them or put them in timeout for an indefinite period of time now going back to the very origin or early on did you position yourself by proxy of just that you're covering bands that had political things or did you position yourself because your own political leanings towards eventually once hate five six started to pick a scene towards touching on non-show related items on your social media. So I've, I've contrary to popular opinion, I've been covering protests and social movements for many years. Um, off the top of my head, even as early as 2011, probably even before that. So it's not new, but I've certainly ramped up in the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic. Um, and with everything that's been happening with black lives matter and the general social awakening, if you want to call it that in, in the world, I've definitely ramped up that type of content, but I think from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted there to be a political element. I mean, like literally the logo is a camera and sickle and that's not, that's not by accident. Like I wanted it to be very clear that there's content here represented by the camera, the cameras kept capturing this content, but also it's a political statement at its core. And at first the political statement was, yeah, this content, this music is going to be accessible to anywhere, regardless of, barriers whether that's geotemporal barriers or like whatever there are there's this idea that this music and this content will be accessible um but i did know that i was going to be i mean when i first started i didn't know like instagram didn't exist so i didn't have a sense of like oh there's going to be this massive social media following but i did know that ultimately the, the camera's purpose was to be able to cover and amplify marginalized voices because fundamentally what the camera, what the camera and sickle represents is the amplification of bands in the scene and putting them on this, this, this platform, but also weaponizing that same thing to amplify voices and movements that I personally identify with. So um, certainly the, the, the things I cover and the things that I choose to focus on are topics and issues that are very near and dear to me, whether it's Black Lives Matter or indigenous issues or things involving uh, MOVE or Mumia Abu-Jamal. Like, these are things that have historically been uh, integral to who I am politically and the tra trajectory I have taken. So 
I am much more predisposed to to covering that on on the channel. Well, I feel like early on, it was one of the easiest things to poke at you. And one of the first things was attacking you for the sickle, and I and I think still to this day, it, it's got to be one of the easiest low picking fruits for people who are trying to troll your page to kind of come at you and say, oh, yeah, you know, what about how many blah, 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 or what about this? And I wonder if over the years you kind of built up a callus where that doesn't even affect you. Yeah. From all the naysayers and people that have come on with, like, the same take that a lot of people have had since 2008. Yeah, it's it's tired and unoriginal. Um, it's the same shit when people coming at me calling me like Osama bin Laden. I'm like, yeah, you can't update your racism. You can't think of a better, <laughs> a better brown person to call me. Like, you're literally going to resort to Osama. Like, come on, like that's a little, it's a little, little dated now. Um, so I, I definitely brush it off, and I'm not because it's 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 not insightful. Because again, like, all right, so what should my logo? I, I, I've I've resorted to make, I, and I have, I have a cache of memes that I've made to, to respond to some of these things. So whenever I get a meme or whenever I get a comment about like the fucking logo, I have a pre-made meme of a crying bald eagle and uh, Hulk Hogan ripping a hate five, six shirt off, off, <laughs> off his chest. And I think there might be like American flag behind it or something. So it's like, what do you want me my logo to be like an American flag? Cause that flag represents the destruction of so many so many societies and civilizations and, and colonies and people. So whatever, whatever you think my logo should be, uh, someone's going to have issue with it. So I don't, again, when I, I also fucking created that logo when I was a teenager, <laughs> you know what I mean? So not that I have any regrets about it, but also like it is what it is. And again, I think that my politics are clear. Like I'm not a, not a tanky. <laughs> I don't. I don't advocate for things that people associate with certain things. So, I feel like I make it very clear about what my politics are. If you even if you follow my page for a whole thirty seconds, you'll see that it's very pro BLM, pro Indigenous issues, and ultimately giving a voice or not speaking for for people, but amplifying voices of those who are not or historically are not as well represented in the public sphere. So. I don't know. I think that, um, yeah, you can take issue with my logo and what you think the, the, the sickle represents. Like, so for example, I, I recently gave some footage to a three letter news outlet cause they wanted to, they were doing a piece on, uh, move and BLM. So they, they asked me for some footage and I said, sure, just, just credit me as hate five, six. And then the producer called me frantically 20 minutes before it aired. And she's like, I just looked, looked you up. I just found this manifesto on hate five, six.com about, uh, anti-capitalism and, and and distribution of media, and I see this logo. Like, well, what what is this all about? Because this this is this is this is freaking me out. And I said to her, I'm like, you can read the manifesto. It's right in front of you. It's very clear what I'm trying to do. And you can Google hate by six and get a very strong sense of what it is I'm I'm doing with this platform. Um, and I didn't say it to her, and I kind of wish I did, but I should have. I wanted to say, if you have a problem with me, look in the mirror. Like, look in the mirror of what your three letter news company has done <laughs> like you have you have you have done more to 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 put put out disinformation to sow division among people to 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 take advertising money from companies that have destroyed lives and 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 entire societies and you're coming at me 
because I'm a fucking one man journalist, if you want to call it that or what have you, with a Cameron Sickle logo. Like, come on. So, I mean, you're seeing it now, like uh, in in a similar way. Like all these companies are putting out their. There was a meme I saw that it was a. I think BMW had to put out a pride flag, but then someone dug up the 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 bmw logo when they when they were when they were sponsoring the nazis so it's 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 interesting to me where, where people pick and choose uh who they're going to attack over uh a logo or perceived perceived political um leanings or alliances so much i like to backtrack on just real quick to touch because i think it's pertinent to the flow of the conversation one of the things that never really would have ever came to mind was thinking about third world country people having the access and exposure to hardcore because of something that a kid could do with a fucking camera and the internet. And it's become so important now in this age where, you know, whether it's Riz Farouk and Unite Asia, all the different people in Colombia constantly America is blocked out from the international politics. And I think that there is an interesting way that hate five, six help influence outside of America in what's going on way more than ever before of like what's cool and hardcore and internally because of you built relationships with different European and South America, Southeast Asia, all over the world, you have contacts with folks. And then so in return, I feel like this hardcore scene probably has the most interaction outside of the, outside of the States and is cognizant and aware of some of the really bad things going on because like typical Americans, we usually are either not taught because exact things you were talking about the corporate run media, the whole nine yards, and just the general ignorance of, well, it's not my backyard, so why should I care? And I and I happen to believe that you have a hand in it just by just by proxy and nature of the fact that the the way the, the things that you've covered and the way that you have shown yourself to be empathetic to the struggle of all the different people who are marginalized and all the different fights that are still going on in our country. Yeah, honestly, I never fully thought about it that way in the sense that, like, Hate Five Six initially was designed to um, introduce a global audience to American bands because I was predominantly filming American bands when I first started, and in a way, the the table. I mean, and, and I've traveled a little bit to to film bands in Japan and Australia, but in a way, yeah, I've used the platform to like educate. <laughs> historically willfully ignorant Americans about things that are happening both domestically and internationally. So like the way that you just put it makes sense. It, the sense that like initially the goal was to introduce American bands to a global audience and also like to an American audience as well, but to a global audience. But now it's about like taking what's happening globally and introducing that to the American audience. Cause I think that uh, that is something that is um, left out. I think in the last couple of years, the, conf- the the tables have been turning a little bit, and we're seeing more people in the hardcore scene talking about issues um, and being more comfortable um, with addressing them. But, but yeah, I think that um, that is that is a good way of thinking about it. Well, I mean, it it becomes 
like, okay, the struggle at our level is so embarrassingly disproportionate than, like, say, Colombia or say what Riz and Hong Kong went through. And so, as you are just doing this amazing job of broadcasting the things that become pertinent and important to you, whether it is your national day of what's it called observe we were talked about on the i always forget the, the oh yes the yeah, national day of morning in um the national day of morning we spoke on this on episode two but it shows an empathy and and a focus that you had early on by taking your and well now we're gonna you know, we're, we're gonna start calling a platform taking your platform and not using it to benefit yourself but really push towards other people and i think that probably opened up some lanes for people to say like, oh, wow, you can see that this guy cares. So, hey, check this other thing that's going on in our area. Would Was that the case where you were starting to get hit up by people saying, hey, check out these things that are happening here? Or did that take way longer? I think that's that's something that's, that's taken some time. Um, so especially now that I've been doing more international coverage of things that are happening, I'm getting hit up by people telling me about what's going on. So actually... Um, People in Colombia were reaching out to me early on in that with the with the unrest happening there in late April, saying like, "Hey, like, can you repost these stories or these these the slide deck uh, about what's going on here because it's getting really fucked up?" So people were people have been reaching out to me more, knowing that I'm willing to amplify it and put it out there. So I do I do rely and that and that's circling back like. That's where, even though I'm, I tend to be heads down and ignore comments, I do need to keep my ear out for things that are also important that people are reaching out to me uh, in earnest to let me know that they think is important, that, that's that's worthy of, of signal boosting. So it's certainly, um, as the channel grows and as I do more of this type of cover- coverage, I'm noticing a increase in the amount of people who are tipping me off. Because I didn't, I didn't know about, I wasn't really following Columbia until... Eight five six viewers down there were saying like, "Hey, been following you for a long time. We have a big hardcore scene here. Just so you know, shit's getting fucked up." And so um, that's when I started to really start to listen. And that's when I I hit up Carlos because I said Carlos from Rubbergate is from is from uh, Colombia. And I said like, "There's only so much people want to hear me talk about <laughs> politically." And again, I, I'm not trying to speak for other people when possible. When possible, I'm, I'd rather I'd rather have someone who is a part of a community. Uh, speak for themselves, and they are they are free to 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 speak through speak to my audience through my camera to get their message out. So I hit up Carlos and I said, "Hey, uh, I want to offer it. If you want to come on and talk, I would love to have you. I think this would be a good way to educate the American horror scene uh, about what's going on because they they will think that it's a uh, uh, a little bit more authentic than me just rambling or, you know, me just sharing a couple stories. And he was a little reluctant at first. Cause he's not, he's, he has not spoken about that um, in general in public. And he was also worried about uh, whether his English would be good enough, but his English was amazing. And I, and I told him, I was like, dude, your English is better than my Spanish. So like, if anything, I should be apologizing to you for not being able to communicate with you in your, in your native tongue. Um, so we had him come in. Um, we, we filmed a great interview where he, broke it down about what's happening in Colombia. And that, that video got like, I don't know, let me pull it up now. I think it got some crazy amount of traffic on, on, um, on, on Instagram. And in the comments, people were saying like, 
hey, this is actually my introduction in terms of what's happening there. And like, I'm now going to pay attention. Yeah, it had 70,000 views on Instagram, which is pretty incredible, incredible, incredible for a video. And uh, I know I was expecting, I was expecting five digits, maybe like 10,000, 20,000, but that one blew up. And um, I think that um, it was it was very powerful having him come on and speak uh, and speak from his experience uh, as someone from there. So doing that, and then also doing a lot more work with uh, the Move organization here in Philadelphia, and letting them speak directly has it's been it's it's been humbling uh, for me to r- remind myself that like what is my role here? My role is to amplify, and when possible, as much as possible, to not speak for other people because people can speak for their own people. People can speak for themselves. They can they can speak about their own history. They don't need academics to come in and write long essays and 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 papers about them they can they can they can speak for themselves and tell their own history so uh the the more i do it it's a reminder for me to to check myself and and remind myself okay like uh am am i using this platform as best as possible or are there ways of me to 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 wield this uh such that it is um much more respectful to the people that i'm trying to to give voice to or amplify i should say well, going off of that, thinking, I mean, and, and essentially, that's what the man with the one arm behind the camera does. You know, like, you're not up in the front holding a microphone explaining to people what they're watching. From your outset, you just had a camera, you observed, you captured it, and then you gave an amplified, you know, like, hey, this is something I saw, check it out. And that's the nature of Hate Five Six, And I feel... That although you have your politics that lean towards these things, that you do a great job of not writing the the byline like the the way like a news news writer would. Like, hey, here's what's going on. This I you know blah blah blah, and then you let the people see what it is. And I think that's a whole lot more powerful than like in your situation we're talking about the corporate news people, where. They want to talk about the content, but they want to stir. They want to steer it toward their own agenda, and I don't feel that there's an agenda, and I don't feel that there's ever been an agenda, and that, to me, is the essence of what like a real like using a platform is supposed to be. You know, um, many times over, people have said, "Hey, can you post this from This Is Hardcore?" If it's something that I like fervently disagree with, maybe not. But it takes a lot for me to go, okay, I don't fuck with that, but I get it. You know what I mean? I feel that I've seen a lot in the last year, and you and I have talked about this privately, and we'll talk about it publicly here. I've seen a lot of people jump to get to the front of the line to be a super loud voice just so everyone knows that they're on the right side of things where all they have to do is echo and, and and project and and push this further without having to make sure whoever's reading it is getting their specific take on it. And so I feel like you've always done the tasteful thing as like a real sense of like, if you're going to give someone a platform, you know, it, 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 we're talking about like what a physical platform is. It's like a way to boost presence and someone could see someone. Oh, well, look, he's on this platform. I could see him. It's higher but you're not going to stand in front of the person who needs the platform and say, this is what this person's going to say. And this is what they mean by it. You just give them the mic and the camera's rolling and, and it rolls. 
And I find myself reading social media where people are trying to use platforms and they're trying to do the right thing and they completely fuck it up by adding their own tincture and their own voice that we don't need to get the context and understand what's going on. Yeah. At the same time, I, I do certainly inject my voice on certain political takes. But not 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 by rule. Like if it's by nature withholding the camera and by giving the platform of hate five six, that is your political take, so to speak. But you're not you're not up in front laying out for five minutes more what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's obvious it's obvious what's important to you. It's obvious where you are focusing when you do use your platform. But it's not like the retweet where it's like, all right, we already know what you're retweeting. Oh, you're going to quote this and, and ramble on and echo what the person retweeting is like, we don't, you know, they don't know how the timeline goes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, because it's, 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 uh, I, I try to maintain that balance where, because uh, again, when I'm at a show, I'm like an objective observer filming a band and kind of just putting it like well, you know I, I, I film bands i don't like but i'm there because i I'm, my, my task is to film it and put it out because someone somewhere's gonna like it that band and that's that's the, the mission is to just put it out there so um but you know obviously there's there's certain things if someone's gonna if someone's gonna hit me up saying like hey can you post this uh back the blue rally i'm like I'm not gonna fucking post that you know there, there's certain things i'm not gonna do so in that's like the degree. To yeah, you're not you're not book, you're not putting up the next Proud Boy rally. No, so either, there, there's there's certainly know? things I'm not going to do. So there's a limit. There's a limit to how unbiased I can be, because uh, because ultimately, again, my 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 objective is to focus on things that are near and dear to me. And that's like, I don't know. I, I, so much of Hate Five Six is tied to who I am as a person. Um, that. Uh, that it's hard to separate like the mission from the things that I fundamentally believe to be, to be self-evident truths. Well, I also wonder if because of the growth that hate five, six came, you were given more power by presence and with people being familiar with the channel to become a stronger platform for some of your political takes in the sense of just growing the channel. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously you're going to speak if it's something that was important to you, but with the follower and fan base and subscribers and all the things that come with managing social media, you've done an excellent job of realizing, like, okay, I've got a little bit more people listening when I post something that's not hardcore related, and you've done a great job of being a platform for that stuff. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think that especially in the last year, when people are starving for content or starving for some sort of like activation of the senses, they're, they're coming to hate five, six more. And I think that maybe that has helped with me being able to like put information out. So I don't know what the conversion rate is in terms of how many people who view the stories are actually digging into this information and are coming away thinking about something differently. But anecdotally, I get a lot of feedback from people saying, Oh, I didn't, I never knew about the, the 1985 move bombing in Philly until I saw you post about it. So even if I can get a handful of people to learn about a new thing, that's, you know, that's a win for me. Cause I think that, I think that we, we get, um, we get a uh, tunnel vision in the sense that we're, if we don't have a hundred percent conversion rate, or if we don't have, if, uh, you know, 
if we don't have a hundred people or a thousand people show up to the next rally or do something that it's a failure, that's not the case. I think that it's a, it's a, I, I've said this before. It's, it's a marathon and, and, and not like a sprint. So it's about, it's about winning minds one by one. Uh, and there's a, there's a line that uh, Mumia's grandson, Jamal Jr. says a lot. Uh, it's, it's each one teach one. And, uh, and I think there, I think there's power to that. So if you can, if you can teach one person something new, they pay that forward and that's how you that's how you build momentum it doesn't it shouldn't have the metric shouldn't have to be damn you know did did i did i get thousands of people to to engage on this and become like active in this movement or you know versus did i get like five people to really dig into it and i think that there's i personally think there's a lot of value in getting five people to really dive into a topic versus getting a hundred or thousand people to just surface level read it once retweet it a couple times just to get people to think that they're woke enough and then forget about it i'd rather have five people who are really diving into something because of a post rather than you know temporarily arming a couple thousand people who are just gonna fall to the wayside after it's no longer popular to 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 think or talk about that issue well i find that when we're you're discussing in that it just sounds exactly like me passing out flyers outside of shows where you really don't think if you got a pile of 500 flyers that you're getting 500 people to buy a ticket but you're hoping the 10 to 15 people that you didn't know they're going to come and it's going to change their perception of life because they're going to be immersed in our culture or they're going to enjoy the night and maybe go further and as we start talking about how hate five six as man is the pandemic we're kind of button up on how the conversation left where towards the end of episode two, we were talking about the vault and the backup, right? The backup videos. And, you know, none of us had what was going on in mind that it would turn into, you know, what it is, but there was so much political things going on that you were able to balance it and you were able to find a meaningful way to channel voices that needed to be heard. And I think that some people in hardcore were are young, obviously, and they don't want to feel like they're not on the they're not the bandwagon, but like, did you make your statement today? Did you make your statement today? Hey, how come you haven't addressed this? And I you know, I, I sit in line with you. I, I very few times have it is I personally going to write something directly from this is hardcore fast social media channels, but I have no problem if the ethos lines up with what we have going on to promote and echo what a, a political leaning is. But I find that in the modern world of social media, every band record label, t-shirt company, sticker guy, like it was getting overwhelming to wake up and go up. Oh, this is where this guy's going to be grudgingly, make a public statement, not because they really had it in them, but because they were worried about not having and someone questioning. Yeah. You know? And I, I've tweeted about this. I called it woke points FOMO because all the, all a lot of the bands that were um, posting stuff last year about black lives matter uh, have been largely silent about other issues that are inherently connected to black lives matter issues. So uh, I, I did that to draw a line in the sand and to, try to apply some pressure. Um, 
And I, I know that I've probably burned some bridges and I, I know that when shows come back, people are going to be certain people are going to be looking at me a little weird and not happy with me because the things that I've said to, to really call out that lack of a persistent engagement or interest in uh, issues that they were pushing very hard last year around merchandise. And granted, yeah, they were, they were selling merch and donating the money, but that money runs out. And what really is sustainable is uh, engaging with the information and using that information to, 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 to educate others. So um, that's what I felt like for, you know, in this past year, we saw a lot about, we saw, we saw a lot of uh, was this, um, I don't want to call it posturing because I'm sure that these people do, or, you know, people do care about these issues, but it, there's a, there's a, there is a very clear limit to how far they're willing to go with it. Uh, Again, because maybe they don't know enough and they're afraid of taking the wrong stance on something and they don't, they don't, they feel like they're, they're just not educated enough to, to speak about it. But even that, that is a conscious decision to not take the time to learn about it. And I've, what I've tried to do specifically in the case of Mumia Abu Jamal is to put out, I've made it very easy for people to, to learn what you need to know about his case and that he is both legally, uh, he's both legally and factually innocent. And so I've constructed that in a way that there is no, you don't have the excuse to say that you don't know enough. I've put out, I've produced and put out videos that talk about it. I've done interviews that talk about it. I've distributed 40 page newspapers that his defense team have, have put out that he helped write. And so I'm literally sitting in my apartment, like stuffing hundreds of envelopes and mailing out fucking newspapers for free. Like literally if you want it for free, you just, you, you get it for free. So there's no excuse now to, to get into this information. And the way that, uh, the way that I look at it is, uh, I don't know. I, the one thing that I've learned from covering move and working with move is that all systems cave under pressure. And that's, that's been move stance is that, uh, you apply pressure on, on something and it's, it's going to cave. That's just, that's just a, a law of physics, law of physics, you know? So, uh, my stance is that if there is an issue that I strongly believe in, and that I think is consistent with things that people in the hardcore scene uh, have advocated for in the past, but are not taking a stance on in, on this current issue. I'm going to draw a line in the sand and apply that pressure and, and call out what I think is that almost hypocrisy of not wanting to follow through and engage on this other issue because it's again, it's it's uh, either seemingly too complex for them to grasp, or they're afraid to take that stance because there hasn't been that tipping point. Cause again, with, 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 with the George Floyd uprisings and, and black lives matter a year ago, there reached a tipping point where if you weren't talking about it, then you look suspect. You were suspect for not talking about it. And I think that that is what motivated a lot of people to start talking about it. And then once it became, once it was safe to not talk about it, people stopped talking about it. And I think that's where, that's where I'm, that's the space where I'm sort of uh, focused on is why did you stop talking about it? And what is it going to take you to, to talk about it again? And can I artificially create that, that pressure cooker to get you to fucking talk about it?
that made you talk about uh, made you talk about a similar issue a year ago. So that's what I'm doing. Some people don't like it, but I don't fucking care. Well, the bigger picture, it, it, it's it comes from all sides. You have people like you said. How come you didn't write about this? Have you made your uh, obligatory BLM post? Have you posted six GoFundMe's? Like they're like these side quests. And I feel that the nature of this isn't just to continue to push the conversation forward and expose people, but you know, you have to have the empathy. It's easy to say, yeah, punch a Nazi. Yeah. That's a fucking easy position to have. Now, plenty of people could also say, oh, well, they'll, they'll, they'll say that on the internet, they won't do it. But I mean, it's still something, it's still one line in the sand. But when we start talking about things that are actively going on, I feel like you said, if it's not a popular thing to go on, the people who are usually at the top of the platform chain, so to speak, they're not going to go down any smaller rabbit holes because it doesn't get the engagement or the, what they're trying to do, you know? And I mean, and a great, a great alliteration of that you brought up with pride week and all is the kind of like the, the backlash, the now making fun of corporate America for breaking backs in half backwards to jump on to make sure that they're being accepting. Whereas they probably have not 10, 20 years ago, but even probably privately now, they still have actual practice and people who probably grind their teeth and jeer at the idea of their company they work for, you know, doing the pride flag logo, whatever it is, it is that they're now getting clowns on Twitter about. Yeah. And, and so for me, when I think about what you do, it's a line where you're instructing, you're leading from the front, but again, only at certain times when you're trying to really sink a point in, do we hear your voice because you allow the voice of the people to be at the forefront of all your platforming. And I find that that's the best way to really instruct and influence people is not standing here and being like Walter Cronkite, but just letting the story tell itself, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, every company that has a social media team, they're trying to capture a larger part of the market. That's really all it is. They they have a social media team figuring out, all right, how do we get this demographic of young people to, to fuck with us? And I would guarantee that they are sitting in a room being like, oh, if we post about this current issue, that's going to draw more traffic to our page and our to our brand. It's all about branding. And so, and they're trying to think about, can they move the needle uh, in a certain way that benefits them? So I'm thinking about things similarly with Hate Five Six, but you know, obviously I'm trying, I'm trying to trying to grow the Hate Five Six name to 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 grow that audience so that when I put, put more shit out there, it reaches the larger audience. But what I'm trying to do, what I'm consciously trying to do, is can I use the fact that I have so like a certain percentage of people's attention span because they're scrolling through Instagram, they're they're likely to stop on my post or whatever. Can I use that to, like I said, create pressure to get them to involve, uh, get them to get, get them to engage or get them involved um, and to, and to take a stance on this issue that I think is worth it. So again, like it, I'm thinking about things in a similar way, but my objective is to 
um, you know, honestly and um, respectfully bring light to certain issues. And uh, the way that I the way that I've been thinking about it recently is, you know, a lot of a lot of young people discover hard truth through hate. By, a lot of they discover hard truth through a hate by six video, and that's their vector into this this world. Um, I want them as they come into the page and and to to see the post. I want them to, to from the outset. If if I am their gateway, I want their I want part of that exposure to be like, oh, okay, there are there are people in the scene talking about politics because I could just as easily have made Hey Five Six an apolitical thing where there's no political content and people coming in would just think that oh, this is just a content, this is just a account that post ban, post ban video is great. I can just consume it and leave. But knowing that I have a certain certain level of people's attentions attention captured and uh, held. I want them to know that like politics are very much at the core of what I do. And uh, ideally they're going to come away thinking like, I I want them to think that this is the normal, you know what I'm saying? I want them to think that like, it's not, um, it's not um, wrong or um, uncouth to talk about political issues. Cause I want them to, I want them to see that if someone that's running a platform like this is talking about it, then this is acceptable. If that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. The th- The thing for me is the difference between the genuine concern about spreading a positive message or information versus the, like you brought up a great example, the, the corporate branding. And I feel like as hardcore punk people, our job is to eschew that kind of behavior. And, but at the same time is, you know, still instruct people and say, Hey, you know, this is something that I care about. This is something, you know, like, and you know, there's a lot of different weeds we could get into versus like the many arguments. One being like, Oh, well you posted a black square. This is a problem. Like there's so many small little internet fights that slow things down instead of bring true progress. And so, whereas with a channel like yours, it, it's not hard to determine quickly that you're you're politically set a tone pretty early on in, in Hate Five Six. But something that you and I talked about, I don't know why you're not like an actual member of the press or why you don't have like a separate wing that is just another arm of the of the entire crazy work of Hate Five Six. Because, especially in your move work now, you're making on the fly, up to date news possible. You know, like you are closer than ABC. You're closer than NBC or Fox News, and and you're giving the the Africa family the voice unpeded without you know the the, the corporate twist. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you many times over, not just mutated what hate five, six is, but you've added auxiliary aspects to it. What stops you from chasing down, trying to be like a more DIY version of what like the voice channel did before they went cheesy. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not opposed to it. And I think that I've started to go down that route. And I think this, this year has been my foray into that world. And I mean, even when I went to Australia, um, 
I covered a little, very, very little bit, but I covered a little bit about some issues that are happening down there. And I think that um, what I want to do is if, you know, as shows resume and as travel picks up with me being able to travel and cover shows, I want to, um, I want to cover issues that are happening regionally, wherever I'm at. Um, my, my, my feeling, my genuine feeling is, you know, I might start a new wing of 856 that covers a lot more political issues, but I would not create a separate channel for it because I am a firm believer, a firm believer in blurring the lines of entertainment and information war and this idea of culture jamming and subverting people's expectations. Because people come to the channel, they expect a, a funny mosh video or a band playing a reunion show, but they're getting a uh, powerful speech about something that's very relevant and that's happening in the present day. So my concern with creating a separate wing and having like a hate five, six news channel is that that creates a silo and it actually, it actually makes it easier for people to, um, it actually makes it easier for people to, to, to tune it out. So there's a, there's a, there's a line from a rage against machine song, <laughs> fix the need, develop the taste. And I feel like what I'm trying to do is create a dependency and it, it's kind of fucked up when I, when I, when I, when I, when I talk about it, but this is how I really think about Hey Five Six. Like, I'm trying to cre- I'm trying to create content that has mass appeal, that hooks people and gets them. You know, people in hardcore like watching videos of bands, whatever. Like, creating content that has mass appeal, but the the underlying objective is to to enlarge in the blast radius, so that when I when I post something, it reaches a larger group of people. And so, really, what I'm trying to do is like blur the line between. Like you're coming to my page for content that entertains you, but every now and then you might get hit with a shotgun blast of just truth about something that's happening. And so uh, I, it is a deliberate decision to keep them one in the same. And I know people don't like it, but it's done very deliberately because otherwise it runs the risk, runs the risk of uh, people being able to tune it out. And I don't want that to be the case. I want, because uh, I, I know that people, they might mute me, because I'm posting stuff they don't like, but at some point they're going to unmute it because they know that I'm going to be posting that band that they're waiting for. And so I, I get that comment a lot on YouTube. People are like, I, I, I was following this page, but I'm going to unsub because you just posted this. You live stream a free Palestine rally. I'm going to unsub. And I'm like, great, you can unsub, but you can unsub. I don't fucking care because I know that you're going to come back as soon as I post that band that you like. So it doesn't, it really doesn't bother me. I actually think it goes hand in hand with one of your biggest musical influences that without them, there would be no hate five, six where rage against me seeing music was socially charged lyrically, but commercially popular enough to get some shirtless bro. Who's kegging it up in the parking lot to go, fuck you. I don't do what they tell me. You know what I mean? Like you gotta, they found the commercial balance while having a message that, was both subverted and out in the front at the same time. So I'm not surprised that this is your take. And I, I, I feel like you, uh, we always make a joke for those listening about the uh, Fury road by like the man max third movie. Whenever Jocko interacts with anything that I do, I'll send Shunny it and I'll do the witness me meep. And then when you had rage of the machine moments recently with all the stuff going on, we were like so excited. I was so excited for you to be acknowledged 
and to be able to like work within their social media strata to, you know, again, be a platform to make this shit possible. So real quick, before we get into the really nitty gritty details, you got to tell me about the rage stuff and tell everybody who didn't like catch it. But like, it's gotta be fucking awesome. to go from being like a kid obsessed with raging as a machine. And then later inside out, and and now this is where you're at. Yeah, people people are very tired of me talking about Rage Against Machine, and I, I, I totally understand it because I talk about it every fucking interview, and I punish people to death about it. But very quickly, uh, the band took notice of the coverage I was doing around Mumia at Jamal, and they made it very clear that whatever it is I wanted to do with them, they would green light. Uh, short of them performing because of COVID, they couldn't come out, but they were basically like, "Yeah, whatever you want to do, we will uh, we will help you do it because we see you and we fuck with what you're doing." So. I said to them, I said, okay, um, like, I want you to post that we have these rallies coming up for Mumia. And they did. They posted, uh, they posted, um, like, the, the advertisement for the, the events that we had at City Hall and the marches that we had. Um, then I said, okay, um, I want you to reissue the benefit shirt that you did for Mumia in 1999. And I want you to give all of the money to the local mobilization effort here the ground the the ground the grassroots uh on the ground effort here and they said sure okay we'll do that and then they were like what else can we do and i said well i have this fucking camera uh i want you to let me live stream these rallies through your channel and they said okay sure we'll do it <laughs> so they let me uh broadcast for three days straight um the three events that we had for mumia abu jamal and essentially everything that ran through my camera was broadcasted directly through their massive YouTube page that has close to a million subscribers. So uh, obviously they they deal with what I'm doing on a much larger scale in the sense that uh, they get pushback from people who are surprised that they have political opinions and the, uh, the comment section tends to be pretty toxic. But, you know, they they understood that what I'm trying to do is very much inspired by their effort to use their platform to put a message out uh, with the understanding that some percentage of people are not going to fuck with it, but some percentage will. And it's important to, to, to utilize uh, that information as such. So yeah, I was, I was very excited that they were uh, open to me working with me on, on a couple different things around Mumia's case. It's always awesome when you kind of level up or anyone levels up. You know, whether you go from like a hardcore kid who loves a band to talking to the singer to my band played with this band. There's so many different levels, like whether it's like I grew up loving this record label. Now they're putting like there's always a level up and like a a moment of like, yes, this is fucking it. And and I don't know if there's too many more for you than doing that, man. I mean, at at so many different levels. So I, I really I'm glad you shared that. Now, we were talking at COVID time about Mike Africa specifically and the things that he was working on. But really, you know, you've thrown the name out a bunch of times that in the wake of all this George Floyd and then all the different things that came post that and all the different people and the constant cases, I think this is like the, like one of these uh, moments where like the atmosphere was finally right for people to take a look at the move situation because uh, you know it's it's not unlike and, and you know I hope that people understand that this is like the best comparison I can come up with that 
it's much like and also not like the Tulsa scenario where people didn't know about the massacre at Tulsa. And it's these kind of things in history that whether they're just not focused on because of who controls what the focus is in the textbooks and the, and the media. And, and I think move is one of these most recent scenarios where the caliber of injustice is just beyond the pale. I mean, dropping a bomb on a row home and, and it, it's just like, it was like a, a foot mo- footnote. You know, like it might as well just be some bullshit quiz. Or like, name the year, or you know, name the city where a mayor actually bombed civilians. You know, like it was never really addressed because I don't think Americans were ready to really delve into it. And I wonder, even with all the things that are coming out and being unearthed, and with all the support towards m- move, and most of the members out if people really are really ready to continue to push this forward. Yeah. I think that there's been a shift um, with people's willingness to engage with it uh, recently. Um, I I told Mike, so for the, for people listening who don't know, Mike is a local activist here in Philly. Uh, he was born in prison. He was actually literally born in a prison cell and his mom hid him from guards for several days before she had to give him up. Uh, both his parents are from the Move Nine, so nine people were sent to jail, stemming from a, a standoff in Philadelphia in 1978. Um, even though that there is significant evidence showing that they were innocent, so they were they were sent to prison for 40 years, and Mike literally spent his entire life working to free them, and he got them all out of prison. He got two of them uh, passed away in jail, two of the Move Nine passed in jail, but he worked very hard along with uh, other people to to get them out. Um, and yeah, it, for anyone who wants to know more, you, I suggest watching the documentary 40 Years a Prisoner that came out on HBO in December. Uh, it's one of the we're gonna have a link to this in the in the show notes. Yeah. Because it's important as Sonny's talking about this for those without context to look it up. So what happened was um while they were in prison, um in nineteen eighty five, the those move members who were not thrown in jail stemming from the 70 incident, they uh, relocated to a new house. In- let's, let's dial this yep. back real quick. Just so that way there's a better, I don't want to yada yada over because some of what makes the 85 thing happen is set in 77. Yes. So, so in 77, the, the police got a court order to vacate their property and it was based upon a bunch of like complaints from neighbors. And there was a thing about the a cache of weapons. And then there was an actual standoff. And I believe there were move members who left and there's new members who stayed. And was that the that was the basis of the move nine, correct? Yeah. So move was a move is a back to nature group that is uh their their fundamental base their fundamental belief is the protection of life so that's plant life animal life um, and and ending these systems that uh, endanger life whatever whether it's capitalism or the prison industrial complex or whatever they are about um, bringing an end to these systems that endanger life so they were they were very vocal in the seventies about these issues many many of these issues are now you'll see it on TV and people talk about very casually, like move was ahead of their time talking about veganism, talking about animal rights, like talking about things that are now like um, 
now not popular and, and safe to do. So they were, they were, um, they were definitely upsetting people by, by, uh, speaking their truth. Um, and so what happened was in 70 through in late, in the late seventies, uh, the city, they, they had many run-ins with the police, um, police, uh, throwing them, throwing them in jail. There was an incident where, uh, police stomped a infant, a move infant to death. Uh, Life Africa was, uh, very young and they, they stomped, uh, stomped them to death. Um, in a different incident, not in the 78. Right. In right? a different incident, a different incident, but, but after that happened, that's when move really ramped up. They, they added a, um, so they lived in, um, the Palatine Pal- 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 village, uh, part of Philadelphia. And they, they built a platform in front of their home and they would, they would stand on the platform and just speak about what happened, talk about the police brutality, talk about what happened. And, uh, like the city was not having that at all. So the, the city ended up setting up a, uh, blockade, uh, around their home. And I think it was almost like a year long blockade where they, they could not get food or water or supplies brought in. And that culminated in the standoff in 78 of August 78, um, where there was a shootout and, uh, one police officer was killed, but there's a lot of evidence that showed that that came from friendly fire and not from the base. Yeah, it was a, it was from friendly fire, and the argument can be made that it was from the police, and it was just like the chaos of it caused them to immediately assume move where the people shoot. Yeah, and so there, the, the move was in the basement of the home, and so uh, they they came out. Um, there's a well known video of Delbert Africa getting getting beaten by police, and that was that that might be the first well-known video of police brutality filmed and broadcasted on, on television uh, was the beating of Delbert Africa. Um, so essentially nine of those move members were sentenced for 40 to hundred years for firing a single bullet. Cause the judge said at the time they, they treat themselves as a family. So I'm going to try, try them and convict them as a family. So rather than, rather than any sort of investigation in terms of figuring out exactly who fired a bullet, they just tried them all as a whole single singular unit. Um, so move was, uh, uh, yeah, in prison for four sentenced to 40 to hundred years. So fast forward to 85. Hold on real yeah. quick. I've been thinking and I was, I knew we were going to talk about this, but just thinking about, I had seen uh, that movie that was on Netflix about the black Panthers and all that. And, and it's just 10, it's not even 10 years later that in Philadelphia, it's kind of like the same thing that the Chicago police end up doing with Fred Hampton. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly in many ways. Um, so for, for those of, so those of you listening, check also check out the raid and the death of Fred Hampton in 1969 in Chicago, who was a uh, leading black Panther. And I think that people should also understand the context that the sixties anti-war movements began also a pro black movement because there was already the death of Martin Luther King, you know, like there was a lot of things going on in the social movement towards true, you know, like a balance in the way that the black community could do things. There was still redlining that was really prevalent at the time. And so these, these different groups, be it Black Panther, be it the, the move movement really were just trying to address with the government and, and the country. Like, this is what we're, this is what we want. You know, like one of the, 
one of the like the, the, what was that the, the, what they say like we're we want this now or something that like, was like the, the tenant like it's important to understand like it's not it's not without reason based upon the black panther stuff in the late 60s and the early 70s all over the country that this was eventually going to be something that would happen in a city as black as philadelphia was yeah it's it's no surprise that move was targeted uh certainly the climate of the of of that era and it just the, the history of america uh it's no surprise that they were targeted for the things that they were saying and, and the way that they were uh the way that they were going about uh, with with their tactics so in uh in 85 uh there were the the members of the move who were not incarcerated they 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 they, they relocated to 6221 Osage Avenue uh, in Cobbs Creek part of Philadelphia and they again they set up a bullhorn they uh and they essentially were trying to raise public awareness about the move 9 who in their in their mind and justifiably so were, were um, wrongly imprisoned and they were trying to put public pressure uh, to create public pressure to get them out. And so that's, so they set up bullhorns. They would, they would, they would, they would talk about uh, the freeing of their people. They would continue talking about issues around just what move. Yeah. They, they got into some problems with their neighbors too, which is like one of the reasons that kind of like, was a shoehorn kind of way of like, well, we've got to step in. These guys are fighting with the neighbors. Yeah. So this, the city was, the city used that as justification saying like, Oh, the, the neighbors are unhappy. So we need to come in. But the question, the question, the, the, the counterpoint is since when does a city care about the grievances of black residents? It's, it's very often the case that they, they actually don't care what black residents uh, are dealing with. So they, they very much so use that as a pretext and justification to come in and um, to go after move, and I mean, some of those residents are still there on sixty, the sixty-second hundred block of Usage, and they they come out to the rallies that are held, and they will speak and say, like, you know, no matter what we felt at the time, we never wanted it to escalate to this point. Like, we never thought that, like, this was warranted. So even they feel like their uh, concerns were. Um, manipulated and escalated by the city. And, and, and for anyone who's listening, it was a black mayor who Wilson, Wilson good, who uh, allowed, you know, a, a decision was, was made to drop not one, but two bombs in the home, one on the roof. Well, well, I mean, let's, 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 let's really lay this out here. They showed up with, they showed up with warrants. And as soon as there was any kind of like pushback for, from the move um and it was like parole violations and and you know whatever they declared they declared them a, a terrorists but preemptive if you're going to try to have any kind of de-escalation you don't evacuate the entire fucking neighborhood like they sh- i mean eventually they shut the water off they set the electricity like this was a planned move attack from the government in when I say government at the state level, at the city level to have hundreds of police officers around the yeah, area. It was a state to yeah. it was, it was staged. They knew when it was going to happen. And um, there's this, the old, and, and, and sorry, uh, I'll use a really bad movie reference here. The last scene in the young guns movie where they like trap Billy, the kid and all them. They know what they're going to do. They trap the whole thing and they don't give a fuck if they put the whole building on fire. 
They're, you know, like they're going to get these motherfuckers is the point. And that's kind of what ended up happening because at a certain point, like, yeah, like a, like a two hour standoff, then a giant gunfight, untold amounts of bullets being shot. And then ultimately, was it the mayor or was it the commissioner or was it the governor who actually made the call to drop the 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 bombs off the top of my head? I'm not sure exactly who authorized it because it was a state chopper, uh, and a, they they dropped a satchel full of C4. And even though the the Philadelphia police was heavily militarized at that point, um, I don't know if they had a ch- access to C4. Like that came from a state level to to get the C4. Um, but going back, just to backtrack, a uh, quick thing, uh, they evacuated parts of the block, but it is well known that a move supporter had taken several of the kids out to go grocery shopping. And when they came back to the block that afternoon is when the, um, barricades were set up and they weren't letting people back in their homes, but a police officer let that person dropped the kids back off inside the home. So there was, it's a, you have to ask yourself, um, why would they allow children to go back into a home that they are staging a standoff with? There's no other justification other than they wanted those children to die. Because if the, if there's a standoff, or, or is the argument if there's children present, they could pacify them, or use that as leverage to get moved to come out? Maybe that's the case. But again, yeah. but again, if the police is there, if, if police are there to protect and serve, they would not allow those children to go back into the situation. You know, oh, uh, I mean that that that's unequivocally the case. There had to be some motive that was beyond just safe, public safety. Yeah. So uh, the police admitted to firing 10,000 rounds into the home. Uh, so if they admitted to 10,000 rounds, you know it was significantly more than that. So they surrounded the home on both sides and in the rear and were firing uh, nonstop into the home. Then this is before and during, uh, before the bombing and actually while the fire was burning. Um, and Wilson Good. While the fire was burning, he allegedly was watching it on television and he claims that he mistook the static on his TV for being uh, water cannons being uh, sprayed onto the fire to put it out. He literally thought the TV static was uh, water. So he did not make a decision to, uh, he effectively let, the, he made a decision to let the fire burn. Um, and that was his justification. But I, in my heart of hearts, and given the history of move, it seemed like they were using this as justification to completely wipe them out and to and to kill them. Uh, the other point that I wanted to make was that many of the officers who were involved in the '78 shootout were there in '85. So you can't tell me that those officers didn't have a grudge against move and did not want to wipe them out. Uh, two people. There were there were eleven people. There were there were there were thirteen people in the home. Uh, 11 of them perished. Two of them got out, an adult named Ramona and a young child named Birdie, Birdie Africa. They were the only two people to get out. Yeah, and Ramona, Ramona had to go to jail. Ramona got Ramona got out. Uh, she escaped the fire and she was sentenced to jail for um, rioting, I think it was. And she was thrown in jail for seven years. 
And so really she was honestly thrown in jail for surviving that because no one was expected to survive that. And Ramona's eyewitness testimony is, uh, you know, she tried to escape from the back. Cause if you look at the, the layout, the, the only way to escape, cause the, the police dropped, it's well known that the police dropped a bomb on the roof, but they also dropped a bomb on the front porch, blowing out the entire front facade. So the only way for them to get out was through the back alley, but the back alleys where there were a row of cops, uh, firing into the home. So Ramona, Ramona and Birdie have given eyewitness statements. Birdie, Birdie passed away in the last couple of years, but they both gave eyewitness testimony saying that as they were trying to escape, they were met with gunfire. So they were faced with this decision. Do we run back into the fire and burn alive? Or do we run towards the police and get shot? So thankfully they got out, but 11 other people, six adults and five children did not survive. And, um, it is very likely the case that many of those people um, not only burned alive, but what likely killed them was a, was a bullet. So recently in the last uh, couple of weeks, honestly, let's not, let's, let's get to that. Yeah. Let's not. So there there's a lot to be said, and I think that for people in the 90s, there were times when the mood was covered. Um, I was sitting in my living room in Frankfurt, and I remember it happening and just not understanding because I was five years old. But understanding the cops bombed an entire part of the city, and as a lifelong resident of Philadelphia, I was there. You know, like, I, I know it happened. But it always fucked me up just how many people didn't know what was happening and then you know like all things as more um people who were either deaf or didn't really realize that during the pandemic when their lives are a little bit slowed down just didn't realize like yeah man like this shit is crazy like there's shit that goes on from this government that's incorrigible and I think that that helped give people like Mike Africa the opportunity with the visibility of the BLM movement to kind of step up and, and really start bringing this stuff back into the forefront. And so even though we may have discussed this on the two, let's get everybody caught up who are listening to this one. How did you link up and begin working alongside Move? Yeah, so I've been interested in the move story since the early 2000s. I think I went to my first move rally in 2004. Um, so I've always been interested in the story, both with the move nine. I, I never thought they would get out, but like, you know, they all have come home. So, and I had heard about the move incident, and I always thought it was bizarre that like this is the thing that happened, but it's not really talked about. It's not taught in schools. People know about it as this like folklore, but it's not something that's in like part of the zeitgeist or part of the public widespread public knowledge so it was always interesting to me and I, I actually told this to mike recently i said to him i was like i don't want to say i was born to work with you on this but in many ways i feel like you know i was fascinated with move, fascinated with the move story growing up and as hate five six has grown to what it is i'm now in a position to help amplify what it is that you're working on and so i feel like i've been it, it, you know it wasn't it wasn't a conscious thing but it's something that 
in hindsight, yeah, I've been like, I've been poised to do this work with them and, and to help them get the word out. So what happened was um, both of Mike's, again, Mike was born in prison. Both of his parents were part of the move nine. Uh, His mom got out, I think in 2018 and his dad got out, I think a year later Um, when they were both out, they gave their first public uh, address at Rowan university. So I reached out to him. I said, Hey, I would love to come film. Like, are you cool with me doing that? And he was like, yeah, let's talk on the phone and let's um, figure out uh, what you want to do. And he's like, as long as you give me a copy of the footage, we're, we're cool. And I said, yeah, whatever you want, I'll, 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 I'll hook you up. And so um, I shot that. He was really happy with it. And slowly from there, like we built up a relationship where um, anytime there's a move rally, he hits me up and I come film it. And in the last year I've been, you know, I, b- I bought this gear to help me do live streaming. So I've been literally live streaming on the ground using newscaster grade equipment to broadcast uh, these these move rallies. So he and I have worked closer and closer together about the stuff that he's been focused on, not just with move, but within within the realm of just uh, Black Lives Matter and prison abolition. And, and yeah, I think that uh, in the last year with growing interest in BLM and people's interest in things like prison abolition or police or defunding the police it's put him in a position where people are more receptive to what he has to say uh especially with his issues because again what happened to move like move move was not an all black organization by any means but what happened to them is indicative of what happens to nearly every black revolutionary or just black people in general so i think that um there's been a there's been a shift in terms of people wanting to learn more about what happened to them. Cause again, the tactics that were against using its move are still being used uh, today because if they could bomb move, they could. And the fact like the fact that after the bombing, there was a commission, but no public uh, official was ever held accountable. Yeah. There was like an award, like X amount of like a million or $2 million given the Ramona, but no one went to jail. And in fact, because it was 85, Wilson Good was already on his second term as mayor, so he didn't even he didn't even quit his job. He stayed on for three years. Right. So it's it's crazy that you know they they uh, following that there was no public because you would imagine if the city dropped a bomb and the city is apologetic about it, then there would be some sort of referendum or some sort of proposal in place. Okay, how do we prevent this from happening again? How do we prevent this from how do we prevent future situations from escalating to this point? And there was nothing. So that goes to show you that they knew they got away with it. They would try to, I'm sure they would try to do it again. They would literally try to do it again. Maybe not now because of people's uh, awareness of the situation. It would be much more difficult for them to do it. But the fact that there was nothing put in place to really address it tells you. There's no fail. There's no fail. There's there's no way. It tells you everything you need to know about how serious they took it. So, um, well, also, it also. It's not, it's not in textbooks. It's which sounds it's it's which sounds silly and something that I, I've learned is that textbooks are a curriculum. And so, as a non-college student, but who happens to own and read a lot of textbooks, it's very interesting what people actually get taught. And I find that if you're going to talk about modern American history and the civil civil liberties and the civil rights movement and the way that our country is still, 
engaged directly in holding back progress. The move is the, one of the greatest examples. And I mean, as um, a patriot, it should be absolutely a, like the most disgusting thing to anyone to think that a government would level so much just fuck it that they would drop a, two bombs on a row home and burn like 70 or yeah, six, it, it was it was a big amount of it was a huge amount of houses that were burnt it was 60 it was and, 60 homes and it displaced over 250 people and yeah that were not part of them not movement. even part of it and so so the collateral damage is not unlike our foreign wars and you know i'm, I'm not i'm not trying to conflate two points here but when the government of a city pretty big city you know in a very black city specifically and a black mayor have no problem dropping a fucking bomb on civilians listen there's still courts of law here there's no like this was like an execution and that's one of my biggest problems i think ultimately with it is just the egregious level of violence with the true screw, uh, the true intent to just wipe them out and be done with it. Yeah, and the thing is, the violence has persisted. So that incident was thirty six years ago, and so you know, in the last four years or so, like all the Move Nine have come home. So there's been a celebration about, okay, we've gotten some some semblance of closure here, like these people are home. But in late April, it was I think it was late April, maybe. Even- oh. oh. Let's not. Let's get to that. Let's let's do a little bit on this, but then I want you to bring that out because that's super important. Um, and I and I wanted to, I want people to really understand the scope. Like, these people came out of jail for things that should not have been that many. They shouldn't have been in jail that long. Like it, it's insane how much time they got. And and on top of it, is they're trying to piece the semblance of their life back together while still having to promote the fact like. Hey, by the way, you you put us in this position. You know what I mean? And, and and I'd like for you to kind of talk before we get into what happened with you, Penn, and all that. How you interacting with Mike Africa and those folks who are out now? Like, because I mean, like you said, um, the the kid who is an adult, he died. Ramona's out. Like, you know, John Africa was obviously was uh killed in the fire, like the people that survived and lived, they have to deal with like the true trauma of like, Oh yeah. Remember us. We're the ones who the city try to bomb. Yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, the, there, what's, what's especially difficult for me is many of the, like many of the, the, the move nine had children who were killed in the 85 bombing. So they were literally in jail watching on TV as the home where their family was living was bombed and was allowed to burn for hours to the ground. So it's difficult for me when I go to these rallies and I'm, I'm hearing them speak because the, the, the pain that they went through of being imprisoned and then having to watch their family be killed in such a public manner and then to come out and there's still no justice. It's a very difficult thing because that those wounds have not healed. And it's very clear that they have not healed. Um, and when you hear move speak, you realize that they're still unbroken by what happened. They're still advocating for the things that they believe in. They're still 
in the wake, and I know we're going to get to everything that we're talking about, uh, the recent stuff, but even even in the wake of the recent developments, Move is saying, "Fuck an apology. We want you to let Mumia out. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna do anything for us, it's we don't want money. We don't want anything. We want you to let Mumia out because Mumia was a journalist in Philadelphia who was the only journalist to cover our story respectfully and honestly, and he's been targeted and thrown in jail for, you know, nearly forty years because of that. So even 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 after everything that happened to them, Move is still of the position." Like, yeah, we, we suffered all of this brutalization and tragedy, but we are still 100% about applying the pressure to, to, to seek justice for our move supporters who are also still in prison. So it's, um, it's painful. It's humbling to see, uh, how they carry themselves. And again, like, not to make them to be martyrs and not to say that they don't feel pain or that they're superheroes, but it's, it speaks volumes about who they are and uh, their ability to uh, overcome and persevere and not allow this system to defeat them, whether it's physically by killing them or emotionally, mentally to prevent them from wanting to continue to doing that work. Like they are, not willing to to compromise and and to give in. So I definitely admire that, but it's uh it's it's hard having to watch uh two mothers who spent 40 years in jail come out and have to speak about watching their children die at the hands of police. Well, I find that what really it shouldn't it shouldn't ebb this easy into what's going on but you know the the last move member is released or in the the times where blm is gaining a lot of traction with non-white or with actual whites for the first time where people who are not afraid of like what's my white racist uncle gonna say like the kids have really taken up the banner and said, Hey, we don't want to repeat the sins of our fathers, so to speak. And instead of the move being like, Hey, look at us. I think they jumped kind of like in rank. I'm like, no, this is all part of the things we've been talking about. And would you say that that's the case that they were able to not only uh, suffer in silence, so to speak, and just kind of like deal with their wounds, but jump in and be like, yeah, this is what we've been talking about for the past almost 50 years. Yeah, no, they 100%. Um, if you watch any of the coverage that I've done, they will say that. They say that the shit that we're seeing now is what we were talking about 40 years ago with the police brutality and you know they got away with it without cameras. Even even now, we have video footage of George Floyd. We have video footage of Alton Sterling like of, of black people being killed by police and they're still they're still Nothing being done. Obviously, George uh, Derek Chauvin got 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 charged and convicted, but there's still so many cases where people, like police, have been videotaped and they got away with it. So, moves moves opinion is like, yeah, we talked about it even before there were cameras, and it's still happening. So, you're either with us or you're not. Like that's it. That's it. Like you either understand what we're saying or you don't fucking get it. Now, before. Before we just go right into what's going to move, you've kind of grown into being like if there was a you're like an aide de camp to Mike Africa at this point. Like you're you're helping him with a lot of things 
going forward, right? Yeah, I helped him launch a Patreon. We we talk a lot about just uh, ways that we can like use technology or media to 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 get the word out. So we, he has his own he has his own podcast. His own podcast. He's been he's been he's been doing great with that. He's getting a lot of uh, traction in terms of new people that want to talk to him. Um. So yeah, and 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 I've 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 told him like you know, and he knows that a lot of people have come in to do a documentary or write a book about move and it's like their way of getting their name out. And then they just disappear once, once they've like, you know, once the flash in the pan is over. And I told him, well, it's like, it's like tourism. It's kind of like journalistic tourism. Like, Oh, this is a hot button. Let me jump in and get this now while this matters. And then I'm going to move on to who won the next tennis fucking trophy. Yeah. And and I've told him like, that's not what I'm here to do. And he knows that. And he said that he, he sees that that's not what I'm about. So I've made it clear to him, like, Hey, I'm I'm here to work with you, and I'm not here to to, to exploit what's going on because I I believe you know from a very like I said from a very young age I was I was aware of what happened and I I was I lamented the fact that it was not talked about or covered to the degree that it warranted. So I see what I'm doing as um, living up to what I felt was missing. So um, <clears throat> that has allowed that, now now that yeah. you. Now that you're, I'm sorry. Now that you're side by side with them, you can kind of like level, not so level at the playing field, but like you can kind of explain to us kind of like the not so much day to day, but like the progress from the first time you covered to what you guys been up to, and then like with the revelations, which I would like you to kind of like all walk linearly into, like. You're you're at the ground level of this right now. Yeah. So it started with Mike, you know, Mike hitting me up to cover rallies or just to just send him some clips and he would post it. And then, you know, I was doing a lot of live streaming. Live streaming was getting a lot of people to engage and, and learn more about what's happening. And then um very recently it was uncovered that uh UPenn and Princeton had the remains of two of the children who died in the 85 bombing. And so they were using those remains to uh, study them to um, use them as props in classrooms and course online classrooms they had they were they were using them as props and so they're essentially profiting off of these remains even though the family was notified that the remains were returned so again this is a bombshell that just came out um, in the spring that the re- remains actually were not returned they were used they were passed around like a hot potato and they were exploited and held unethically studied unethically and things like that so um, this is all very new. Um, and so Mike and I have been working very closely about, okay, how do we, we need to find out exactly what's going on. Cause we know that this is not the end of the story. If, if they're admitting that they had the remains of two children, it's likely the case that they have more remains and who knows what actually was in those caskets that they buried in, in late 85 and 86. So, um, We've been doing a lot of work. We've been we've gone to the medical examiner's office and gone through a lot of paperwork that has never been seen before, and we are in the process of documenting um, the story in real time. And um, there's not much more I can say in detail about exactly what we're doing, but we are. Yeah, you can't divulge too yeah, much. Yeah, but right now. this this is an ongoing like essentially true crime. Again, like this is a thing that happened in '78 and then in '85, and you know the family got out in. 2018 but there's still now this new development that needs to be told so the way that it's just like the move family has uh, has not been allowed to have any sort of closure like it's it's constantly something new that is uncovered that 
prevents them from finding peace. And right now it, it deals with these remains. So what essentially we're trying to do is figure out, okay, what exactly happened in 85? Cause we, you know, people know about the bombing. They know that their bullets were fired and people were killed, but there's a level of detail that's still missing about how they died, who actually killed them. And the, um, the the custody of the remains the who had them who was in charge of them where did they go why were they sent to here and not there and um for what purpose so we are we are um very quickly diving into figuring out how to best document capture and tell the story because it's very much uh, a current issue because um beyond move i mean pen was exposed for having a Crane, a, a cranial, a collection of, of skulls, human skulls, that's been well known. It's the Morton collection, and uh, Samuel, I think Samuel Morton was his name, was a well-known white supremacist doctor who who was using black the skulls of black people to to uh, make an argument for eugenics. And so Upan has maintained his skull collection, and it recently came out that many of those skulls were from black Philadelphians whose graves were robbed. So. Again, everything that happens to move is. Are you talking about that? Are you talking about that? Um, that that uh, graveyard that was moved, like like in the like the, like in the twenties or something like that. That they grave robbed that or somewhere else. I, I off the top of my head, I don't know specifically where the graves were, but uh, it 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 is known that that um, the Penn Stadium. Um, what what is the Penn? What's the what's the name of the Penn Field? The oh, uh, Franklin, Franklin Field. Field, the track and field. Yeah, it's very well known now that the. That field is now on the top. It's on top of a, of a cemetery of of, of 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 a black cemetery. There are still black people buried on those grounds. So, um, yeah. So it came out that there's this, this cranial collection that the that Samuel Morton and and his disciples like grave robbed, and have those skulls in the pen collection. So, again, going back to what I was saying before, things that happen to move are part of a larger picture of the devaluation of the devaluation and dehumanization of black life, uh, both in life and in death. So um, we're trying to, again, tell the story about um, what happened and how it connects to present day, whether it's like, yeah, what's happening with black people uh, and how they're treated. And also this idea of this lack of accountability and this, this, this idea of immunity that, that, that officials have when they commit these things is you can imagine if you or I were to fucking drop a bomb on a home or, or fire 10,000 rounds into it, we'd be thrown in jail or if not worse. Well, I, I think, I think that's one of the things where the racial lines are divided heavily because the, it's just the way it's always black and white, black and white, but this is an American fucking issue. It's an American issue. Yeah, I agree. It's a fucking American issue, you know, and whether it's Ruby Ridge, whatever, whatever your your leanings are, yeah, Waco. They did the same thing in Waco. This is America. We have made it our fucking mission to not allow that to be the way that things are handled. And if you're listening to this and you're like, I can't believe you guys talked about move for forty minutes. Hey, man, this is what the fuck is this? You got to get race out of the issue and realize is if they're doing it to poor black people, it means they will eventually do it to white people if they step the fuck out of line. 
And I, and it's our job to not let them. It's our job to make them pay for it. So that way we never have to worry about that. This becoming a bigger issue. And then this ties back into the Columbia thing and the Hong Kong thing we said earlier on. We're very lucky for what we have in a very fucked up way that like, you know, we do not get bombed or we don't get shot in mass the way, uh, what was that? Burma, the Burma uprisings and the way that the government ulstered them, like seeing the videos of that, like we're lucky that when one person in America gets killed by a police officer, after so many have gone killed without being that the world starts paying attention. But this is something that a lot of countries deal with way more than we do. And you got to get your head out of your ass racially and realize no fucking government has the right to fucking bomb a goddamn building with kids in it and, and displace 200 something people. There's just got to be a better way. You know, like there's has to be a de-escalation. and it's a travesty to have to say this in 2021 to people listening, but this is really what this is. It goes beyond race. It goes to the government cannot overstep their bounds with this level of force. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. Now, Taking this back to the platform motif we were talking about, you have created a scenario that because of your channels and because of your reach and because you're broadcasting, you're able to infect and, 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 and pose real change and give a voice to this. And I, and I just want you, I know you probably talked about it in somewhat, but like, how does it make you feel to be at the ground level? Because you're not just a camera guy at this point, because you're also now sh- being in the strategy. You, you are now, in effect, like part of the camp and making sure this whole story never dies. How does that make you feel at a fundamental level? And then how does it make you look at like the work you've done with shows? And if there was ever a moment where you think if things got so deep within move, is there ever a possibility that the political stuff that you're covering will have to prioritize being at, like if there's a, if there's a, a Mike Africa or, or a move thing, you know, that's your priority one to be there. And I, I wonder how that makes you feel after all the success and all the tile, uh, you know, like tire tireless work, improving what you do with hate five, six, like, how does that make you feel knowing that you've kind of elevated yourself into a role of no longer being part of the coverage, but also being on both sides of the situation. Yeah. I think that as I've grown, I, I, I feel like it's, it's part of my obligation to, to do this work. Um, as a person of color, like I feel like uh, growing up, I was conditioned to feel like I was not allowed to have a voice or not allowed to uh, speak out about certain things. So I feel like uh, doing this work in many ways has been a full circle thing for me and a self-affirming thing in the sense that it is, it has allowed me to harness a side of my life that for many years, I did not think I was capable or allowed to have. So, um, I embrace it. Uh, I'm thankful I have the opportunity to, to do it. Cause again, like move doesn't allow a lot of people in and for, for, for totally understandable reasons. So I feel thankful to be able to, to, to work with them and that they, they, they trust me to, to help them in this way. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to stop filming shows. Cause I, I get this question a lot, you know, like, is there going to come a point where like the stuff that I'm doing politically is going to make me turn away from shows. So 
I, I have a hard time picturing me never filming shit. Like, I, 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 I don't think it's ever going to reach that point. But, you know, if, uh, if I'm with Mike and we're, we have a one in a once in a lifetime opportunity to get a, uh, interview with someone, uh, and it conflicts with a, with a Philly hardcore show, I might have to make the decision to sit, sit, sit the show out, but it's something that, uh, no, you're going to have Kev hair. I'll send Kev hair to film it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I you know, I think as shows pick back up, I'm I might be faced with that decision, but I I really feel like I'm going to be able to uh by and large juggle uh this this life. Cuz again, like I've been again, I think I think people assume that the political content is new. My argument is it's always been there. What's new is that I've ramped up significantly with it. So I think that what I'm going to have to learn how to do is how to navigate being able to balance both worlds because again, like what allows me to really amplify these things and put it out there again is being able to have this content that has mass appeal. And that means like, don't get me wrong. I love filming shows. It's not that I'm like, Oh, I got to fucking film a show to get the content out there. It's like, no, like I love filming shows and that, that my interest in it has not waned. Like I've, I've done two dozen live streams during the pandemic and I loved every single one. And I'm excited to keep doing stuff like that. Even as shows resume, like working with bands closely and doing like videos like that. But Again, I I I I am well aware that what people are first and foremost attracted to the channel is the music content, and for many people, um, the political stuff is secondary. So I I'm not deluded to think that I could completely pivot and just do do this activist work and not and not and say fuck shows. Like uh, I know that uh, I know what my role is, and my role is to is to wear both hats and to and to toe the line. It it just goes back to what we talked about in the very episode, episode two. You build up skills that you are self-taught. You constantly uh, refine your process. You innovate and you achieve. And nothing is more an example of that by all the influences from the Rage Machine that we talked about to your deciding to be political with Hate Five Six. And deciding to cover things, regardless of whether you lose followers, this all this all kind of converged to this point where, of course, at the right time, when you have a very accomplished and well-spoken person like Mike Africa at the helm of this situation, that you would not only be find a kinship with him, but you would become like a, a like a key player in the sense of making sure this information gets out unfettered. And pure, and I think there's some to some degree. It's kind of like you you were you were the one who would be able to do this. Yeah, and like I said, I feel like I've been on this trajectory where I grew up knowing about it and wanting there to be more coverage and more honest coverage of it. And I feel like, oh yeah, this trajectory I've, I've been on has allowed me to build this platform to to give me the opportunity to, opportunity to to do that. And it's interesting because I, I remember growing up and like seeing videos of Mike Africa giving speeches. And again, I saw him speak in, in 04 and it, and it really touched me and it, it, no pun intended, but it, it moved me here watching him speak. So I, it's much like the rage thing being a full circle thing. It's a full circle moment for me to be able to work closely with him and to help him get his truth out. Um, so I, I don't take any of it for granted. I, 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 I am thankful that I've been able to work towards, um, to build up to be able to do this type of work this closely with 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 him and his family. 
where do you see anything that Hate Five Six as a brand and as a channel moving towards with this accrued knowledge of how to work a live campaign? Like, where do you? Because you you said you're not going to change the name, you're not going to have an auxiliary. Where where do your thoughts and machinations towards being able to continue to be the bullhorn? Where do you see Hate Five Six going, knowing that you could potentially impact more situations as are taking place, like the move scenario? Yeah, honestly, I haven't thought that too far ahead. Um, it's a lot of see your pants. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, it really is. Um, but you know, in the last in the last year, in the last couple of months, like some of these major three letter news agencies have hit me up to use my footage. So I really feel like that I'm becoming uh, a source that people respect enough to want to like seek out my footage. Cause they know that I'm covering it at a very close ground level and they're going to get unfettered access to the, these, these issues. So I feel like that I'm going to continue pushing more in that direction. And maybe that means I, I actually get like a press badge or, or whatever, but I don't know. I, 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 I really see, I don't have a clear vision other than holding on to the fact that my mission has historically been and continues to be to use the camera as an ampl- as a as a public bullhorn. And again, the public bullhorn might be broadcasting this band playing their first show and they get like a bunch of new downloads on Spotify or Bandcamp. But again, that bullhorn is also weaponized in such a way that it helps people like Mike Africa educate the world about what happened to his family and the justice that they're trying to still trying to seek. So I don't know my, my long-term vision, if anything is to keep cultivating that and to keep, to keep growing it. Cause again, going back to my point earlier, I'm trying to widen that blast radius so that when I do post these things, it does reach a larger, larger, larger audience. And there's always going to be some small percentage of that audience that does get engaged with that information. And, you know, maybe that gets them to come out to a rally or maybe that gets them to, read a book and teach someone else, but it's, it always comes back. It always comes back to what kind of work can I do to grow the reach and grow the audience so that, you know, it, it's, it's like a bootstrapping thing. It allows me to like, it allows the channel to grow. It allows the, you know, the content grows the channel and the channel helps boost the content. If that, if that makes the reach of the content, if that makes sense. So my, my mission as I move forward is to just keep staying true to that and trying to make decisions that I feel like in the moment are best with that mission objective. Now I find that, that it has to grow organically, obviously, and it has to stay from that same kind of position where it's something that you wouldn't hand the reins over to someone else. It would start to be like firmly poised in your hands. But I find that whereas the argument has been made where if you never interacted with a raging machine, you might potentially have never had hate five, six, this conversation never would happen. So if you are still doing what you're doing now and you're using the channel to both promote hardcore punk culture, but also give these different causes and these specific organizations and these people, your platform, you were also positively infecting the youth of tomorrow and the youth of today with this like presentation that's unfettered. It's not corporate. There's no like sticky vice, like, well, we went and talked to Mike Africa, but you know, blah, blah. it's like, 
you're giving it in a raw form that they already respect as a channel for what they do with the music. And I think that that's the way also where it's going to work because you're, you're giving people who are young and very animated and, and truly, I, I truly believe that they are empathetic and trying to make a difference and nothing but young people, old people think the world don't change. It's only the young that really push forward and try to make a change. I feel like it's a great balance between the two. The shows will bring people in. The show videos will keep viewers happening. And then you could potentially build a, a groundswell of support for things that are important to you by people who just want to support the great things. Yeah. Although it, it's, inter- it's interesting. I wonder, like, I wonder if I'm going to be able to, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm going to lose opportunities for certain bands because of the political positions that I've taken or the lines I've drawn in the sand. Or for example, yeah, I am sure I've lost out opportunities to work with certain bands because I am a very political, like the channel is very political in nature. So part of me has wondered, damn, I mean, if I, if I just, if I just took the, the, the path of least resistance, and just uh, stayed quiet. I maybe maybe could have grown even further, or grown to film work with with uh, with larger different types of bands. But again, that to me is almost secondary at this point. The, again, my my mo is to put the information out there that is raw and uncut. Because again, like my show videos are raw, man. Like I'm not putting the fucking camera on a tripod. Like you're literally watching me. You're you're, you're seeing my perspective of dodging a stage diver or or, or, you know, being close to the pit or whatever it is, like that's a level of raw access that I'm trying to convey when I'm, when I'm doing this political work too, like just raw uncut and to the point. And I want that to be like, I think that's, that's, that's a very clear parallel between the work, uh, you know, the different type of work that I'm doing. Now, I think it's important to recognize that, I don't think that you would really be upset with yourself if you had to curtail political stuff to shoot one band. And I think that history will show time and time again where certain people throughout music have had political views and that either carried a stigma through the rest of their career or maybe stymied some of their growth. But ultimately, progress and change is something that comes from music in so many ways through the culture. Music is one of those most infectious things to influence change that we've seen in the entire counterculture revolutions. So those not wishing to be with Hey five, six out of where your political leanings are, if they're for these people and there's for these many different causes that are about the unfortunate power, uh, power shift and the unreasonable, insane amounts of control the government weighs on all these different kind of people. And so I know what you're saying, but I think that you're on the right side of things. I appreciate that. Now, where do, where do you go from here? What do you, what do you got in the next couple of weeks? How do you want to wrap this up? What do you want to shout out? What do you, what's your what's your thought process here on uh, giving us a proper send off after we haven't heard from you in forty fucking episodes? Yeah, great question. So shows are coming back. So as expected, there's a uh, clusterfuck in terms of organizing and scheduling things and show conflicts. I'm sure you're dealing with that headache right now. So I, and honestly, I want to keep doing these streams with bands. I think bands have realized that, uh, doing these one-off streams in a studio that I film actually helps, uh, quite a bit with reaching an audience. So I, I honestly want to continue doing that type of work, like that one-on-one 
work with bands. Uh, but I'm running to this issue right now where I'm trying to schedule that stuff, but I'm, I'm finding out that, oh shit, there's a Joe Hardcore show <laughs> the same, the same, the same night. So I, I can't, I got to reschedule this shoot with this, with this band. So um, I think moving forward, um, I'm still, I'm still putting out daily content. I've managed to, I initially estimated that I'd have enough to last me through March, but here we are in <laughs> June and I'm still going through daily content. Uh, but I'm, I'm reaching to the point where like, oh shit, all right, I need to have, I need to keep filming stuff. So uh, I've been lining up my show schedule, um, both uh, in-person shows and also these like one-off streams I'm tr- tr- trying to do with bands. And I don't know, I'm just trying to grow. I'm trying to grow my offerings to to what I can uh, do with bands. I, I don't want to see things publicly yet because I, I, I want to wait for the right announcement, but I'm, I'm working on a couple of different ways of um, making the Hate Five Six as a service more accessible to more bands so that's that's an announcement that i'm going to have in the coming weeks i think in terms of like bands that want to work with me uh on a closer level i'll have a process in place for for doing that so i think um yeah i think i want to i'm very eager to just uh hit up as many shows as possible now now that things are opening up and to keep putting that content out there because i think that i think the videos have been helping people stay uh sane during the pandemic to remind them of what shows were like and also to remind them of what what we can have once shows are back in terms of uh, what's possible in terms of um, entertainment and, and, and having fun with your friends at a show. So I want to be a part of documenting life returning back to what it was uh, pre pandemic, at least with respect to shows. Well, I think another aspect that you will now take a part of is that you'll have that moment behind the stage to go back to talking to bands before or after a set, which I know played heavily into your Patreon stuff, but also is another way that you're kind of like back in the mode of like creating content and, and keeping people excited. And I find that we're going to go through a major, major bottleneck. When I say bottleneck, I mean the amount of shows that are coming that are already cramming up calendars. Um, a specific Philadelphia club has all but three days booked from September 1st till May 2022nd on the weekends. Every single day, but three, as we said on the weekend, the weekend, like the obviously concerts that draw the best are on the weekend dates. Oh, okay. Wow. So there's three days left between September one and May 2022. I believe that. So we're about the, it's like kind of like no one being able to drive their car and then everybody gets on the 95. Yeah, that's what we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with a crazy amount of angles here, uh, crazy amount of different venues to deal with the traffic jam of shows coming to the venues. So I just see you more busier than ever, and I hope that you can pull it off. And when when I talked about having you on the show, it's really because I got tired of hearing like, well, you have to use your platform. You know, you need to learn. And it's like, are you really using your platform? Do you know what your platform really is? And I think there's a conflation of ideas as to what people think is good behavior and what is good practice. And I and I think that the best example and the most well, like I would say, the most accomplished and amazing amount of like different feats achieved was on your channel. So it was great to have you on here specifically to talk about 
the the better ways to handle social media and to handle the platform scenario. And then just hearing your hands-on experience with the move movement, it's this has been a really great one to kind of be the second time you've been on the show. And I just appreciate your time. I love you as a friend. And I look forward to doing goofy shit to you while you're on stage holding that arm over your head. I hope that arm didn't get too weak. I, I hope, you I hope like, it didn't atrophy. I've been, I've been, yeah, I've been trying to get back into conditioning. Yeah, I, I, I know I'm going to expect you to like ball tap me while my hands in the air on my show, or <laughs> wet stab me with a stab me with a pin. I've done that before. Yes, put you on my shoulders. Yeah, there's a couple. I've done a couple. Yeah, I, I'm very excited to 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 return to that. So, all right. Um. I'm going to list all the channels. This is Sonny from Hate Five Six. Uh, hopefully, we will have more on him in less than forty episodes. But sometimes that's the way it fucking is. So, well, thank you, Sonny. Yeah, if you if you fuck with what I'm doing, please support me on Patreon. I've 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 bled I've bled out a little bit during the pandemic. So, a uh, lot of content's coming through now that our shows are coming back. So, if you fuck with what I'm doing, please consider supporting. It goes a long way to help me continue documenting shows and also doing this uh, work for the movement pro bono. So. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that episode, and I don't really get too political, and I feel that at times we need to understand where we stand, what we stand for, and how we can stand up and speak for people who do not have the kind of reach that some of our channels have. And I know there's a lot of bands that may have taken some heat in this episode, but hey, you know, instead of counting how many t-shirts you sold, why don't you think about how to use your platform and how you can amplify other people who need champions and get their stories out instead of putting your name on top of someone else's plate. Going forward, I got a lot of episodes in the bank. And I mean, from anyone who's listened in the last couple of episodes, probably in the last 10, we've tried to coordinate and not bounce around too much. I do have a little bit of bounce around episodes, but in the next coming weeks, we got some really fucking awesome shit and I'm really excited for it. And the rule of three, we're recording, we got more coming out, we're on our own feed, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, and I'll have links up for all that as well. Just thank you for supporting, and to all my Patreon people, check it out. A lot more is coming up. Love you guys, hope that you guys enjoyed this one, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care.